fulfilled one single promise that they'd promised during the election when they were running. And he got a statement back I mean, all, all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they said the only, the only thing a government, even local government, has to do is get elected. Once, and the only duty a citizen had to do was to elect them. Uh, once they were elected, the citizen basically had no rights whatsoever as to what the guys that you elected did. That's your definition of democracy, for the present anyway. They probably bend it further into even fewer rights in the near future. That's how it's going. Well, I'll be back with more on this after the following messages. Cards 
then to use active ID chips in the cards, and I mean active, not the passive ones that read by a, a, a short-range scanner. And then there'll be a spate of robberies and so on, and big stories in newspapers and terrible stories about poor unfortunates who have been robbed and their ID stolen, and the solution will be to put one inside you and to implant it within you. Uh, that's how they train us step by step into compliance. And eventually, you won't get into a store one day if you don't have one. Uh, that's on the cards, there's no doubt about it. Uh, what they do is they don't force you and mandate things like this. They simply make it impossible for you to exist within their system without it. It's done by coercion. It was the same a long time ago with driving licensing because that used to be voluntary at one time. And so was car insurance voluntary at one time. And once they go above a certain percentage of people who fall for the bait of voluntarism, and it was also a status thing at one time, uh, then they say, well, now that so many are on this, we'll make it mandatory, and then the rates go sky high. All tricks, uh, but they're used over and over, and it'll be the same with the cards, and it'll be the same with the chip eventually. You'll be coerced into either living within their system or starving to death outside the system because they won't allow you to live in the forest. Uh, in the British Commonwealth countries, the forest lands mainly belong to the crown, meaning royalty. That's what it means, crown land. In the U.S., they just call it federal land. And in the U.S. too, you'll find that, that even the, the forest rangers now have been turned into a militarized organization with weaponry and so on and powers, the same as the military. And talking about chipping and how it's coming in and how it's mandated, to, there's no doubt there's, a, there's a, a tremendous push in all media towards this fantastic technology to make us all want it and how safe we'll be and all the rest of it. And all of this can be found in old biblical books, religious books, and in even older mythologies to do with a time that would come when you couldn't buy or sell. And that poses a problem to people today because we've been brought up in a scientific society uh, pushing humanism, secular humanism, where everything has to be logical and misdispelled and what they call the superstition of religion destroyed but it's been replaced by a scientific religion. That's what we have today, is a scientific religion uh, that keeps changing its theories all the time. And we don't seem to notice at the bottom. So there's a quandary there, because you have a, a choice between uh, now, or how could people in ancient times predict this coming time? And it leads you to two choices. Either it was a supernatural occurrence to see something in the future, or, number two, it was a long-term plan. It's not so far-fetched as being a long-term plan because, you see, in ancient times, slavery was the norm for most people. Slavery was an accepted way of, of even being born into. In fact, you thought it was quite natural. And even emperors of Rome, when they had uprisings by uh, slaves like Spartacus, when he commented on it, when he heard about it, he said, what is this, this revolt? What is it? 
and, and they said, well, sir, it's, um, it's, it's the gladiators and slaves, they're, they're, they, they want to be free. And he thought, he said, free? Oh, what an odd idea. And it was to these characters, you see, this class. Slavery had always been the norm, as it had been in the Grecian Empire before it ended in the Egyptian Empire. Uh, three quarters, sometimes 70% or 75 or 79% almost at the, at the end in, in Greece were actually slaves. And many, you could actually work your way through slavery if you were cunning and psychopathic and, and have little businesses on the side and save money up and buy your freedom. And many of the best slave owners uh, and, and the ones who captured peoples and made them slaves had been ex-slaves themselves. And the whole cult of Mithraism came out of people who had gone up through the ranks in, the, in this way, because slaves also were pressed into the army, and some of the biggest armies were comprised uh, of 90% of, of, of slaves. Now, the slaves also had a little, little thing they'd often carry around their neck, and it was part of a circle uh, made of pottery and a leather thong, and uh, he'd have half of it been shattered and broken, and his slave master would have the other half, so it fitted together like a jigsaw puzzle. And if he went outside the limits of the area he was allowed to roam in or shop in for his master, he'd be captured, and that's how they'd find uh, the, the master who owned this particular slave, matching the two pieces together. So they're already using forms of identification uh, back in ancient times. Sometimes they'd even burn it on their, on their forehead, the mark of who your slave owner was. So isn't it interesting, either human nature's never changed and the masters will always want to brand their cattle, their herd, and, uh, and because they're run by psychopathic types, the psychopath, his nature, her nature will never change. They'll always go into the same direction and use whatever comes along today as technology. And for more on this, people should look into Mark Bard's parallelnormal.com website because he's got an article there about Christian end-timers leave their mark on the IRFID industry. And then he has a little note to people not to plagiarize his stuff, but it's okay for me because I take it from I mention who he is. I'll people just take his stuff and, and use the material, sometimes verbatim, but never even mention his name. I get the same done with me all the time. They say that plagiarism is the best form of flattery. And it may be, but it doesn't pay your bills. He says here, Christian end-timers opposed to RFID have informed numerous interconnected groups whose leaders testify before legislators in the U.S. and Europe. They've written books. Some citing my own reporting, that's Mark's reporting, for major U.S. publishers They've done thousands of TV and radio interviews and protested at major retailers in the U.S., U.K., and Germany. Now the RFID industry seems ready to admit the Christians are costing them money. The production levels and profits predicted by the RFID industry and computer trade rags five years ago have not materialized. This has not stopped anyone from continuing to make baseless estimates for the future, by the way. But rather than discussing production costs or bad forecasting, RFID industry leaders are blaming the bad information being spread about the technology's capabilities by Christian end-timers, even when they do not mention the Christians explicitly. 
RFID journal editor Mark Roberti last year cited my Wired News profile of Christian Entimer and RFID opponent Catherine Albrecht in a warning to RFID companies. Be wary of religious opposition to RFID. So they have written about it up in their big trade magazines. I said Roberti erroneously credits CNET with the story, but it didn't come from them. Albrecht has told me she believes RFID, particularly the implantable Verichip, may be a precursor of the mark of the beast predicted in the book of Revelation. Now, I'll continue with this article from Parallelnormal.com after the following messages.
connected with this. And that's what's being pushed out. So the big companies, they're all working hand-in-glove with governments because governments also have mandated this kind of tagging for everyone, beginning with your passports and now your coming uh, mandatory carried you carry it mandatorily, this card that they're dishing out next year in North America. They already have dished it out in some European countries, and they have to have it on them at all times. And once we all have it, as I say, there'll be a spate of tremendous robberies all over the, the world, and the media will go into their hyper gear, as they're told to do, and terrify the bejesus out of us until they come up with a solution which would be an implantable implant and uh, we'll all breathe a sigh of relief, especially if it's on the big programs and some of the big superstar talk show hosts on television who are pretty well worshipped by millions of people that tell you it's a good thing. And that's the way it is. I can guarantee you it's already... This, this is a script. It's a script, and it's not hard to understand the script. It gets kind of boring if you've been studying this your whole life long and you know what's coming next in all the different areas of society. Now we'll go on to Mike Blackford, a caller from Vancouver, uh, I think in Washington. Hello, Alan? Yes. How are you? I'm surviving. I'm glad to hear that. We've uh, communicated before a few times. Yes. Um, I just you made a remark the other night about the uh, Celtic gene within yourself. Yes. Pursuing the goals that will never come about. Well, i got to tell you, you are about making an effect on people. I can hear it. I've been with you four or five years now, and uh, I can hear it in the callers and, and uh, the people I talk to at work. Of course, if some of them can't get to their TV programming, has been so so thorough. But uh, you are making an effect. Hold in there, guy. I know it's working because I, I know some higher-level bureaucrats in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, some of their parties that they're actually discussing the material and mentioning my name, and I thought, what? <laughs> yeah. I never expected that to happen. Well, it's your message is important, but I think I think your power is in the messenger uh, yeah. and the way you... I think it's the poet in you that gets it across. It's, it's really kind of common knowledge mm-hmm. a person studies or has lived you know, some years, but I wanted to ask you about this music thing, I never have been a music person. I always felt like it was, uh, I was supposed to feel something. And I've never, I've never uh, cared for me. I like music, you know, I've, and you are from the other side of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about sulfitial frequencies or these, these holy tones that the church uh, tried to get rid of back in the 11, 1200s. Uh, is there anything to that? Uh, you speak of uh, the scientific aspect of, of music and tonal frequencies. Yeah. Is there something to that? Oh, yeah. It's well known uh, that you can, you, can, uh, you can actually put people in alpha states by using certain tones and rhythm and uh, even the pauses and the way the music's written, they go into a hypnotic state, which is relaxing. And, but you can also use it then to hypnotize them and condition them. Hold on, and we'll go into more of this after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Blackford, Vancouver and Washington. And we're talking about the types of music that can put you into a particular frame of mind. And uh, the alpha frame of mind is, is uh, the goal for those who induce hypnosis. You can also do it naturally when you're young. You'll, you'll see, I used to watch my sister, her, her jaw would drop open. She'd be staring into nothing. And she was putting herself in a, a, nat a natural hypnotic state. Children come in and out of it all the time. And it certainly is a relaxing thing to do if, if, if you can retain that down through your life. But music can also help induce it. And uh, when you're very young, you're more perceptive to the very high frequencies and low frequencies. And they, they have a, an impact uh, in, in the, the formulation of your, the way you perceive and think when you listen to them. Um, and you can certainly put yourself in that, that particular state. But the monks used to use it for a form of meditation, which they, they would attribute to a, a kind of communication with their god. And some of the monks went to incredible lengths to even hyperventilate by singing very, very quick songs and very short pauses for intakes of breath, and it gave them shallow breathing. And you can actually bring in on an epileptic seizure by doing this if you're prone to it, to epilepsy. But they would get a, a high, a buzz, being lightheaded, in other words, and uh, that's when they would have their, their little holy experiences. So breathing and, and music... Uh, verbal music uh, or vocal music has been used down through the ages to alter moods, but also alters the mood of the listeners. And there's no doubt there's a lot of beautiful old music out there. And you can also get this from a lot of the classical music, um, which can put you into the same kind of state of relaxation, which is quite pleasant as long as you're not being programmed. Science understands that they can uh, also use that if by putting words in and so on and certain little agendas and, and they can program you as well. Plato wanted musicians to be licensed because of the power that they held over the youth. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, one, one other question, Alan, if I may. Uh, in your mind, can you think of a time in history when uh, when this elite was beat at their own game? Have, have, have we, the slaves, always been at the losing end of this deal? I, I think there was a time before when money came in or, or what was... You understand, the money could have been made to be anything. But what they, they did was to grab something that not everyone could get their hands on. So they went for gold, first of all. And the Phoenicians used to pay for wars to be started. Uh, they'd pay other nations to start wars once they had the money introduced. And money at one time was weighed out before they coined it around 800 BC. And... Um, they, they said the gold is wealth, and that was the first big lie, but they had to get everyone to, to believe in that. And once that was done, and uh, they could then hire armies, and they used to get this as part of their deal with countries, they would to get all the conquered peoples, make them slaves, turn them into miners, and set them to work in mines. And the, the Phoenicians even had mines all the way into the, into the Urals, you know, the Ural Mountains. Wow. As far away as that. And they used to estimate uh, the cost of uh, um, about half, a, half an ounce of gold uh, per head per slave. That's in the death cost it would cost to get that half ounce of gold. And that was quite acceptable in those days because they always had a, a plentiful supply of conquered peoples to go into the mines for them. 
so it's, it's always been coupled with, with money. Money and uh, creates a, a leisure class, a ruling class, and the psychopathic types live, they thrive in, in a moneyed system. They get to the top and dominate and enslave the rest. So before money came along, along with trade and military, and that's the key to it because you have a mercenary who's a soldier and you have a merchants. It comes from the same root word. And uh, Mercury, the messenger, was the patron saint of merchants and mercenaries because they went hand in glove in, wow. into other countries. Uh, one of them forced the other countries to their knees, enslaved them, introduced the money, and then the merchants profited from it. And then the merchants also supplied the new governmental system and upper elite class that would then rule them. Alan, I'm going to... Can I, can I interrupt you here? Yeah. I'm going to lose my signal pretty soon. I'm driving a truck with a cell phone. So I just, I want to tell you, keep up the good work and all the folks listening out there. This guy knows what he's talking about. My well, offer to help you cut wood still, still stands. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. You bet. Take care. Now we've got Ryan in New York. Are you there, Ryan? Go ahead. Hey, uh, you had a uh, blurb about uh, tunnel vision, I think, uh, back in the summer, and uh, it had me thinking about the uh, the American dream and what a stupid, uh, like, limiting way to just uh, create tunnel vision on something you love to do and then just do it all day. Mm-hmm. And the only way to exceed, like, to succeed is to not expose psychopathy in any way. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one even notices that, uh, like, Mum's lovable hedonism is uh, slipping away from them with the uh, entertainment industry on strike here and there and fewer planes. We have to shop at, uh, like, DJs and Costco's, which is pretty much uh, programming for uh, Soviet grain lines, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's true. Uh, but, but people are set into tunnels from a very early age. And that you often you adopt the same tunnel as your parent. And it never occurs to you there's parallel tunnels all around you, uh, just just through those walls. And only those above them all can see all of them. And that those are the psychopathic groups that control them all. And even when you get to uh, an end of a tunnel and you're looking for truth, I always warn people that you'll see a field and sun striking that field. Sunlight will be all over it in a forest on the other side and you want to run to those trees but you've got to get through a minefield then of disinformation and people who will give you some truth and warp you off into weird directions to put you back in a loop so getting to the truth uh, has to be a determined effort not to swallow uh, the bizarre and the fantastic uh, that those who rule the world finance very well into being to mislay you off in the wrong directions and, and bring you back into other kinds of loops. But you're quite right, yeah. I guess there's a uh, troglodyte connection to tunnel vision. Yeah, in a, in a sense it is. There's a great old legends about the troglodytes, and the troglodytes really just means cave dweller or tunnel dweller, and you'll find them in some of the Grecian and Roman writings. Uh, they hired these the people who were a tribe, and uh, they were scattered, too, across the ancient uh, Middle East. And they would hire them as, as scouts when they wanted to bring armies to go off and invade someone else. 
and they had odd customs. They would bury every member, any member who reached the age of 40, uh, up to their, their neck in uh, sand, and then stone them to death. Uh, so there's no one over 40 years of age in their particular tribe. And even in the ancient legends, including the Hebrew legends, the supposed tribe of Manasseh, if they ever existed, were given the land to the north, uh, and it was mountainous, and they interbred with, the, the, they called them there, they called them a different name, the Hurites, and, uh, but they were the cave dwellers or, or troglodytes of the north there, and they interbred with them, and after a period of time, uh, this Manasseh tribe became red-haired and blue-eyed, because the troglodytes were supposedly uh, almost albino. Uh, so there's lots of uh, old scattered bits of information on these particular peoples, and you find them again in Sumer, because the gods never, were never came in, coming down in spacecraft and stuff at all. Uh, they simply dwelt in caves up in mountains, and people used to eventually go up and put offerings in the caves uh, for these particular people who became a priesthood, because they looked down and observed the people there's even older legends to see where that started from, that they were people who uh, were outcasts. They, uh, they used to kill them at one time, if they were uh, pedophiles and so on. And eventually they, they stopped killing them and get, let them live inside caves and fed them. And uh, over time, as they added to their numbers and generations, uh, they had time to study the people down below, watch their habits, and watch the seasons, study the stars, and so on. And they came down as the priests eventually and then dominated uh, the normal people below them. Uh, and that comes from even from Armenia, those particular legends. So there's a lot of legends on them uh, as, as to the origins of all ancient priesthoods that had knowledge. And who knows how far back that really does go. Would that be the, uh, the wild thing that the tribes are singing about? Yeah, the, that's the right, gentle man. Some, some wild thing, yeah. The wild man as opposed to the gentleman. Yeah, and again, even some of the older uh, Freemasonic books talked about uh, a possible beginnings. Remember, everything's a possible beginning, meaning no one knows. Mm. Uh, but they talked about tree dwellers, and the the, uh, the tree, dwellers, tree dwellers were hunters. They'd come down the trees to uh, kill mammoths or elephants. And when they were coming down the trees afterwards to get their kill, uh, these mountain or troglodyte ones would come in. They were very vicious, and they would drive off the tree people, and they could actually drink the blood even of, of their kill and live on that. And then that gave the legend to the old vampire stories. Even China has them, these yeah. old stories. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing, but it's a stuff for novelists and for the New Age, or, or those who lead the New Age movement, to grab a hold off and spin it off into all kinds of... Because when imagination comes into it, then imagination is a limit. There's no limit at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And David Icke is very well trained. Like, he even had me going for a while. Yeah, there's a lot of people going in loops there. And yeah. um, what you'll find, and this was even mentioned in a, one of the men who first came out about the Illuminati in Weishaupt, he was a mason from Britain who joined the Illuminati. His name was John Robson. And he exposed in his own book um, uh, the Illuminati's uh, project and where they planned to go. But he did mention in there that uh, they put out false 
uh, gurus for the public to follow, to get working people who work for them unquestioningly, true believers. And Robson said that these gurus always end up telling the people that all they need is love, because they can't go any further with it, and and then lead them on holy holy uh, pilgrimages to sacred places and mountains and stuff, because they can't take it eventually any further. You see, so they always end up with in the same the same kind of uh, place. Kind of like Doctor Phil. Oh yeah, Doctor Phil. Anyone who thinks that one man can solve the problems of the world in an hour. I mean, he should truly be up there on the big, big throne. But this is a technique that the, the TV uh, industry was using and uh, really came out with, with Phil Donahue and others afterwards. And they have about 20 or 25, sometimes 30 producers, if you look at the end of that show. And they have uh, masses of research teams that go into the complete histories of all these people. And in one hour, they can convince you of anything in one hour. You don't realize that there's not a sentence, not a word said in that whole hour that wasn't scripted. And every part of the next part and the next part and the next part till they get to the end of that hour is a kind of uh, predictive programming to make the audience think that this is a superman that's leading you here. But it's not. This is an expertly, psychologically driven show. And uh, I saw Phil Donahue once who opened the show with a fant- it was great TV, of course, as you see in the industry. And they had four women's, women sitting on, on stools and the usual audience. Now, everyone in the audience is selected, and their backgrounds are known for their opinions, their religious bents, and so on. Yeah, that's all done, too. And uh, he introduced these women, and, and there's a, a quietness there. Then he says, these are all madams of, of, uh, of prostitutes' uh, houses, houses of prostitution. And there was, a, uh, there was no collapse, right? There was a, a hush... Well, within an hour, he'd gone through their personalities, he had them all chatting, and all the women in the audience were chanting these women on the stages and relating to them. And after the end of the hour, he had them applauding uh, these, these, these madams because they'd now been switched 180 degrees round with their whole opinions, and they were performing a service in the community. That's, that's wow. fantastic psychology, and, and that's how you lead them through the Delphi technique into what your goal was in the first place. Tremendous power in television. The half-hour revolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's the same right. thing with Dr. Phil and all, all the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. The tremendous power, and, 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 and but just look at the end of these shows and see how many people it took to produce that one hour, and it gives you a clue. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So thanks for calling. Yeah, take it easy. Yeah. And now we've got Lisa from Toronto. Are you there, Lisa? I am. Thank you for taking my call, Alan. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, you were saying about the mark of the beast, the Christians and whatnot. You always talk about these people. They are the ones who, you know, created all religions and whatnot. What is your take on why would they put in the mark of the beast, you know, throw that in there and then have to come, you know, have it be such an obstacle or is it an obstacle? What do you figure that's about? Secondly, what's your point of view on lucid dreaming? And I want to ask you about your DVD. Do you go more into work? Words and and whatnot and um, yeah sorry go ahead <laughs> yeah well, it's just like a million and one things to ask you yeah so, see, religion yeah. has always been used as a tool in fact it means to to retie or rebind that's religio that's what it means you're bound to something and you're bound to a way of thinking according to the belief you've been taught right 
And so, so when people come along and give you predictions, the most predictions in ancient times, and this was understood, were written after the events, maybe 100, 200 years afterwards. It was quite easy to, to write a story and say so-and-so predicted this 200 years ago. Because uh, there was no one to check out, and there's no way you could find out if it was true, if they really had written that 200 years ago. So there, it was an old, old scam in ancient times in, in, in many countries, but mainly again in, in the Middle Eastern and even the East, the Far East, they did this sort of thing. And you couldn't verify it, but it was so easy to believe and say, my goodness, this, this, this ancient prophet so read it, said this and so on. However, it's also a form of predictive programming because if God says it's going to be, then it's going to be. And so you kind of feel, well, what can you do? It's God's will. And so it gets the whole idea in your mind that it's God's will. But as I say, there's another way to look at it too. Is it a prediction? Remember, it's called a revelation. That's not a prophecy. To reveal something, you only reveal a plan. And so, in ancient times, when they talked about the God of nature, when they could conquer the God of nature, that meant the sciences that ran nature and, and through, through mathematics and everything else. That's how it was always couched up until about the 1800s in Freemasonic circles. Uh, the quest to understand nature was all the sciences. They knew, even back then, they could come to a time when they could, in fact, uh, break down nature and then recreate it or alter it for their own use. Hang on, and, and I'll talk to you about more okay. of this after these messages. Okay. Hi, folks. I'm going back last few minutes of cutting through the matrix oh, and we've got Lisa on Tor from Toronto still on the line you, you have okay. a second question there? yes I do, actually um, uh, what's your take on lucid dreaming and dreams briefly and I take it what you're saying about the, uh, the previous question is eventually Christians will just throw their hands up in the air and say well you know what, it's God's plan anyways it's predicted and what not uh, many will. There's no doubt many will. Okay, um, they, they accept everything. Most Christians, remember, are cultural Christians. They're born into it. Uh, they don't go in because of some earth-shattering experience. Uh, right. but, and, but there are those who even stop attending churches and who are probably more Christian than the ones who attend uh, and uh, who really believe. And, and that's, you know, that's, quite their, that's, that's their right. That's their right okay. to believe it. The um, problem with any group is when they, they try and force everyone else to believe their belief. And rather than put it down to faith, faith is something different. Uh, belief is, is unverifiable. That's why it's called faith. So you can't push it on someone else by force or, or even create a political structure and force everyone else under the, it into the same system. So, uh, But there are those who really believe and uh, who will not take what's coming. But I do know that there, there were big Christian groups. Remember, the biggest Christian groups belong to the World Council of Churches. That's all your main line big ones. And that was set up by the Rockefeller Foundation, with David Rockefeller being the first chairman for many years. I think now he's the assistant or deputy. And the idea was to standardize their religions and move them along certain ways of thinking. It changed their religions and to get them to accept 
this member. He's also in, in charge of the World Citizenship Awards program uh, for high-flying big players in politics. So it's been, it's been drastically altered. Even the WCC, the World Council of Churches, if you speak it, it's Wissa or Wise or Wicca. They don't do this by mistake. They love these little jokes. And, but once you join it, they start to standardize them all with the same topic, same thought, same agenda. And so the standardization is the thing with the mainstream churches. Um, look at the book, uh, 200 Famous Americans, and you'll find that the, that the founders of all the big churches in America were all at least 32 degree Freemasons, including the founder of Luther, uh, the Lutheran Church in Americas. So they've always been, they've been used down through the centuries by the societies. Okay, thank you. And how about the lucid dreaming? Or maybe sometime you might do a talk on dreams. I don't know if you find it's really unnecessary or what. what's your take on, or do you have a take on lucid dreaming? Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be a long conversation, though. Uh, oh. I did some 10 years ago on some shows, and I'll try and dig them up maybe and, oh, and go over them. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be lovely. Thank you. And... Um, I've got, uh, I've ordered your books, and I've got a little something extra because I think, you know, you've given us invaluable uh, information, you've shared with us, and it's only fair that we, you know, repay you, all of your listeners, in whatever little way uh, that we can. And so be of good cheer and have a good night and wonderful weekend. Thanks a million, okay? Thanks for calling, Lisa, because you you gave me a plug and I forgot to plug myself. That keeps me going. (laughs) You deserve it big time, more than that, okay? Thanks very much. So for now. (laughs) But from Hamish and myself and a... Snowy Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.